I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and no, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. A quick note before we get into today's episode. Sayer and I are working on growing the show to make it a better and better product for all listeners. And one way we're doing that is through Patreon. War Stories patrons get early access to all episodes, patron-only shows, and some behind-the-scenes access as we plan out future episodes and guests. If interested in supporting us directly, the link to do so is in the episode description, or you can head to our website, warstories.co. And as always, thank you all so, so much for your continued support. What's going on, everyone? Preston Stewart and Sayer Pan with War Stories, joined today by J.D. Hewitt. J.D., thanks for coming back on. Hey, no problem, man. Appreciate the, appreciate the invite. So Sayer was starting to get into this before we recorded, and I'm glad he didn't go too far because this is my like, big question that I dreamed up. <laughs> How do you introduce yourself? So like you bump into somebody in uh, the airport and they say, what do you do? Uh, I, I typically say that I'm a, a history educator. Yeah. High school history Ooh. teacher. Yeah. You so say I, educator, not teacher? Uh, teacher, educator, uh, depends. Yeah. Um, educator makes me sound a lot more uh, sophisticated and smart than what I really am. Uh, well, educator so. <laughs> makes me think you're trying to sneak in the YouTube stuff there unofficially. <laughs> yeah, I, I typically... Uh, don't say much about the YouTube stuff uh, just because I don't want to, to come across as, I, I don't know, the, the idea, I still can't get used to the fact that I have a YouTube channel. It's, it's a, a kind of a weird thing to me. So, um, yeah. So officially history teacher. Officially a history teacher. Yeah. Even though I probably spend more time on YouTube than I do history anymore. <laughs> well, I was talking to our friend Marcus the other day and told him you were coming on and oh. he's, he follows your channel. And I, I was trying to explain like how much you do. He was convinced that you had a, a full team that like the history, the history travel history underground was <laughs> a, a whole crew. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, no, not only is it not a whole crew, that's not even the full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. I, ha I have two full, full-time jobs and yeah, I'm, I'm a one man band. Yeah. Do, do all of the uh, field production, post-production research, like all of it is me. <laughs> and and to, like to add to it for anybody who's not familiar, um, like you're not just sitting at your desk or sitting at school recording these videos. Like what I was hoping to talk about today was a trip you just got back from or relatively recently. Sure. Across, across the Pacific. Like, yeah. so, so it's these two full-time jobs and, and editing and publishing YouTube videos like that takes so much time just of itself. But like somehow in the middle of all that, you're traveling around the world too. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Earlier in, in the summer, um, had a chance to go to the the Pacific, uh, you know, on, on the channel, I'm constantly having people say, you know, hey, you should go here, you should go there. And, and I've done quite a bit of content in, in Europe, um, you know, been to Normandy a few times, uh, have been to, uh, you know, Belgium and the Ardennes Forest talking about the Battle of the Bulge there. And I, I was more than, than any other place suggested, had people asking, when are you going to get to the Pacific? Uh, you know, you have a lot of people who, you know, their grandpa was at Guadalcanal or Iwo Jima or Saipan or something like that. And, and they, you know, are, are wanting to see those places themselves. 
so yeah, I finally pulled the trigger this this last summer and uh, yeah, went to the, the Northern Mariana Islands uh, and went to Guam, Saipan, and Tinian. Mm. Generally harder to get to than European battlefields. hundred percent. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, but like, it's, I know it's a, I can't include all of the Pacific in like one conversation, but even just those, which are probably, I mean, if you're talking about Guam, it's probably one of the easier ones to get to. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up going with honestly, what are the, the easiest islands to, to get to? Uh, my, my original plan was to, whenever I was you know looking at, okay, like, what do we do in the Pacific? Where do I want to go? Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of a, a linear thinker. So I want to, you know, I want to start at the beginning and, and go on through. So I, I wanted to do something in Hawaii. I'd never been to Hawaii before. Uh, and then I, I wanted to go to Guadalcanal. Um, so I had talked with Dave Holland because he's like the man when it comes to mm-hmm. Guadalcanal. And I, I think probably knows more than anybody else about, about that battle. Uh, but unfortunately Guadalcanal was still closed to tourism, uh, at that this time. last summer still. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah, they, they were still shut down. So, um, COVID. yep. Yep. Still, uh, yeah, still closed down due to COVID. Uh, so the, the next step, um, I started looking, uh, I looked at Okinawa. Um, I kicked around the idea of maybe going to, uh, Peleliu. Uh, that's still like my bucket list item is to go to Peleliu. That's gotta um, be one of the hardest to get to, right? That, that one. Yeah. That, that one's going to be a, a little bit of a, a chore. Um, but, but probably the easiest of them, uh, simply because, you know, there are American territories, uh, was that, that North Mariana. So, yeah, I wanted to do something on Operation Forager um, and, you know, ta- tackle that uh, series of battles. Did you go at this alone or was it, I mean, you mentioned Dave down at Guadalcanal. Did you have somebody like that in the Marianas that you were kind of teamed up with trying to figure out how to organize and coordinate? Um, so, originally... Um, I didn't have anybody like I was just, you know, kind of tackling this on my own. And uh, I, I reached out to a guy who uh, has a business. I, I found this business in Saipan where they have a submarine that goes and dives uh, World War II wrecks. What? Yeah. <laughs> so I reached out to this guy because I wanted to do that. But unfortunately, they were not running their, their submarine at that time for, for whatever reason. Uh, but he said, hey, I know somebody who knows more about this island and about the, the fighting that took place here than anybody. Uh, it was a guy by the name of Fred Camacho, who's a, uh, a native there in Saipan, grew up there, uh, you know, local mm-hmm. Chamorro guy. And uh, anyway, ended up linking up with him and, and having him kind of uh, shorten the learning curve for me as far as, you know, uh, you know, showing me around the island and what happened there. Um, which was invaluable. I, the, the product that I ended up turning out uh, for Saipan would not have been what it is without him. How do you balance that when you're going to these different sites? Because like, I understand the desire to tie in with an expert, a local expert, mm-hmm. but it's really hard to figure out, like, are you speaking the same language with that expert? Um, like some people could be experts. I feel like it's going to come across the wrong way, mm-hmm. but we're, we're, we're close to the same level on that specific piece of history to where it's not really a good use of time um, yeah. versus you just going and, and forging your own path and looking at the things you want to look at. How do you figure that out when you go to these sites? So uh, originally, whenever I started doing the channel, th- that was kind of my, 
thing that I wanted to do was like, you know what, I'm just going to do the research. I'm going to do it myself. You know, I don't want to, I, I'd had some bad experiences uh, before. Um, I'd taken a group of students over to Europe and we were with a tour group. And I had some really bad experiences with them. And I was like, I don't want any part of that. I'll just do it myself. What was the bad experience? So I took a, a group of students over, oh, I can't remember what year it was, but we went to, um, went to France and uh, in England. And um, part of the, the trip to, to France was going to Normandy. Now, this, this was my very first time having ever been to Normandy. The group that I was taking, that was the main reason they were going. As and, a history teacher, like you're yeah, chaperoning yes. a trip for high school kids. Yeah, yeah, I took a group of high school kids over. Jeez, that's awesome. And um, the the tour operator was, um, I'm trying to think of a, a generous word, <laughs> was not awesome. And um, nice lady, but, but just didn't, it was just in over her head. We got to Normandy mm-hmm. and, and she didn't know sure. anything at all. And uh, mm-hmm. was... Well, there was one particular incident where uh, we were going to be a little bit behind for for dinner, and um, she she wanted to just skip Omaha Beach altogether and not even go there. And uh, I, I there there had been all kinds of problems up to that point. Uh, that that was a bridge too far, though. <laughs> I was like, no, we we are not. And she was a British lady, and we were staying at, at Gold Beach. And uh, I said, listen, we, th- this, this is not an option. We, we have to go to Omaha Beach. And she's like, oh, the, uh, a beach is a beach. You know, the British, the Americans, we were all on the same side. What does it matter? <laughs> so Seriously. it was, oh yeah, it, it was bad. It was bad. And then she tried to tell my tour group uh, that the, the Canadians uh, scaled the, the cliffs at Point du Hoc. And, uh, and I, I had to interrupt her. I'm like, listen, you, I'm sorry, you, you can't take that away from us. Uh, that was, it was not the Canadians who went up Point du Hoc. So it, it, was, it was a really bad experience. So after that, I was you know, kind of determined, like, you know, I, I'm just going to do it myself. Sure. Um, but after I, so I, I went back to Normandy, filmed a bunch of stuff. And uh, Paul Woodage from uh, the channel World War II TV who's been a guide in, in Normandy for, for 20 years, uh, reached out to me and I was, I was on his channel. And uh, we were talking after we stopped recording and uh, he, he, was, he was quite generous to me. Uh, he, he said, yeah, he said, your series on Normandy. He said, it was good. He said, now, there were a lot of things that you missed uh, <laughs> that, that I could have showed you. So whenever I went back, I, I linked up with Paul and um, it's, it's incredibly arrogant of me to think that I could go in and in you know two and a half three days um, be able to get on the ground and and assume that that I know just as much as somebody who's been there twenty years, sure. uh, who's who's been guiding. So so I, I learned a lot there. Um, that you know, hey, if you can hook up with somebody who's who's local and who knows the area, uh, you can kind of. Uh, help with that learning curve a little bit and, and really make the end product better. My, my second trip to Normandy, I think was so much better as far as the content that I produced than, than my first trip. We've been twice to Normandy and both times were um, embarrassed to say like a day trip mm-hmm. to the beaches, right? So like didn't get anywhere near what we wanted to get in, but both times I've left thinking maybe, maybe someday I'll retire here 
And this is what I'll do. I'll just give tours of like mm. live there because it's beautiful. Oh yeah. Peaceful. Um, it's on the coast. Like it's, it, it feels very um, not isolated. Yeah. Calm and keep using the same words here, but mm-hmm. it's like a throwback. Like there's old farmhouses. Even when you get into some of the towns like Bayo is where we stayed. Yeah. It's an old town, man. <laughs> it just, it would be a really cool place to just set up shop for like six months a year and do a tour once a week if somebody's interested. Yeah. Yeah. That it would, it would be awesome. Yeah. I, I love that area. Um, but yeah, it's, it, you definitely get a, a different perspective of, you know, you read the stuff in history books and things like that, but whenever you actually get on the ground and, and kind of walk the same paths as some of these guys walked, um, it, it definitely gives you a, a greater appreciation and a different perspective on the battle. We're getting stuck talking about Normandy. We talked about that last time you were on because you just yeah. got back from like a two-week trip. But yeah. um, the shift back over to the Pacific, how do those battlefields compare? Like, are they still, you know, Normandy's, yeah, how does that compare to Normandy? Are there still casemates? Are there still bunkers? Can you still mm-hmm. see how the battles played out? Yeah, I. it's, th- there are a lot of similarities as as far as, you know, how things look now. And of course there's been some urban growth since, you know, 1944. Um, so, so the battle of Saipan started, you know, just a, a few weeks after the, the battle of Normandy had started, you know, a lot of times it's called the, you know, the D-Day in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so, so yeah, there, there's, there's urban growth, but yeah, there's still bunkers there like on Saipan, especially. Uh, a lot of Japanese bunkers uh, in the southern part of the island at like Aslito Airfield. Uh, and, and a lot of it is still pretty, pretty wild. Um, people, I don't know if people realize this about Saipan uh, or Guam for that matter, whenever they're watching documentaries or, or reading about it. Uh, it. It is some incredibly rough country. Like you think Pacific Island, you think, you know, kind of flat or you know maybe rolling maybe a hill here there yeah Yeah. um there's a a feature that rises up in the center called mount tapachau and and all around it there's one video um i forget which one it's maybe the one where i was talking about purple heart ridge and death valley i get up on mount tapachau and you look down and, and you can just see how how mountainous uh and and steep the terrain is uh and then you you couple that with the just oppressive heat and humidity that's there. Um, I I haven't been everywhere. Um, I would have to say that based on the places that I have been, it's probably one of the more challenging environments that the guys in World War II fought in. I, I, like I said, maybe like the Apennine Mountains in Italy I think would have would have presented a heck of a challenge, uh, but even there, you don't get the 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 heat and the humidity that you do in the in the northern Marianas. Plus the enemy, I think that you know when you're fighting the European soldiers, you sort of you know they will surrender. You know at a point they'll surrender, right? Versus routing out the Japanese, totally different. Also, yeah, you're you're also fighting against an enemy that um, that doesn't give up. Mm-hmm. pretty much uh they're they're either going to uh, kill themselves or they're going to kill you that's why there's very very few japanese prisoners that are taken during these pacific island campaigns uh, and uh i think 
I saw an estimate that they think on Saipan there's still um, 15 to 20,000 uh, soldiers unaccounted for that are still what buried in the island. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's not a big, it's not a big island either. That's the thing. You're looking at 12 to 15 miles top to bottom. Yeah. Yeah. And narrow, probably two or three miles across, maybe. Uh, Probably five to six. So a little bit wider than that. Yeah. Um, You say 20,000 unaccounted for? mm -hmm. Jesus. I mean, that's a third of the entire amount we lost in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an insane uh, amount. So as a matter of fact, there's, there's one um, place more towards the, the Northern part of the Island um, called the, the Tanapag plain. So it's, it's on the Western side of the Island. It's kind of in this, in this flat area. And it's where the largest bonsai charge of world war II took place. Um, the 27th infantry division was down there and, and these guys had already been chewed up uh, at a place called death Valley uh, where they were, I show this in, in another one of the episodes too, basically going right down this valley with high ground on either side and, and just got just got chewed up. And then they get shifted up to the Tanapag Plain where, where they get hit with this bonsai charge. And um, there, there are photos out there where you can see engineers coming in after the battle and there's a big trench that they're digging and there's just mounds and mounds of dead Japanese soldiers that they're getting ready to push in there. So. In the video, there's one spot where I'm filming here on the Tanapag Plain where this took place. Uh, about three weeks after I left, they went in there to the exact spot where I was standing and found a whole bunch of Japanese remains. Um, the, the Japanese government, they, um, they're like Japanese bone collectors is what Fred calls them, uh, come in and, and try to like repatriate these, these remains. But there was a whole bunch that was found right there uh, where I was at. Um, we went into a cave and yeah, I show it on the video. There's the, the bones of a, a dead Japanese soldier, parts of his shoe. And then we also found the brass from a 30-06 that I'm assuming um, was, you know, in, in the firearm of the, the Marine who clearing out those that. tunnels. That's crazy. Oh yeah. yeah. And it is. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine how horrifying that must've been to, to go through those caves and, and, and have, have the job of, you know, clearing those things out. Um, just, just horrible. You can see why they would just, I mean, at, at some point, I don't know if this was widespread across the Pacific, but at some point they just started putting dynamite in those entrances and collapsing mm-hmm. them. Cause like, I'm not going in there. Stop yeah. sending people in. Like, what are you going to gain out of it? Yeah. What, what complicated that was that they had civilians in there too. Um, so the, the Japanese, the treatment of the civilians under, under Japanese occupation was just unspeakably bad. And uh, I, I talked to uh, one guy who was in the 2nd Marine Division uh, that, that fought there in Saipan. And uh, he, he was telling me about you know, having to clear out the caves and, and how horrifying that was. Uh, and then also at the very end of the battle, one of the things that um, people always talk about with the Battle of Saipan is there are some cliffs there on the northern part of the island. The Japanese had told the uh, civilians that the Americans would brutalize them, that they would enslave them, and uh, that they would do all kinds of terrible things to the women. So the, these poor young guys, you can imagine, you know, being 17, 18 years old, 19 years old, 
going up and, and seeing these civilians uh, hurling themselves off of these cliffs uh, and throwing their kids off of the cliffs because they would rather die than uh, face what, what they think is coming uh, from the Americans. They're trying to do the right thing for their kids. Yeah. It's I think awful. that's the big difference. You know, people complain all they want about internet and social media, but we live in a day and age where that is much, much harder to do, mm-hmm. to convince people of that fact, to convince people that your leader, your political leader is the like son of God, basically, or, yeah. or related to God. And God put that person there. That fallacy is pretty much over. And I think we sort of forget that there's bad things that come with the internet, of course, but, and you could always use it to brainwash people and whatever. But I just think that that attitude, I'm thankful as, as for right now, it's a thing of the past for the most part. Yeah. I I think on that scale, I mean, of course you can use the internet to to spread a lot of misinformation, but there's, there's at least the opportunity to access good information Mm -hmm. at at the same time. Yeah. Uh, You're, you're stuck on an Island in the central Pacific um, and, and the Japanese are telling you all these terrible things that are going to happen. Yeah. What, what else is there? Right. Um, and, um, I, I wish that I could recall the, the exact number. Um, but, and I, I don't, I don't even remember where it was. It, it might've been on the book, um, on killing who wrote that Dave Grossman. Grossman. Yes. It may have been in that book, but I'm not sure. Uh, talked about how there was a higher percentage of psychiatric casualties in the Pacific uh, compared to to the European theater. And I believe that. I would have, 100% believe that. Having having been there, and and seeing what they were fighting in, uh, and then also, you know, seeing what war does to civilians um i I can see where it it would get to the point where um it it would be too much to take you know for for a lot of people um but that um the bonsai charge Mm -hmm. talking about i feel like i've seen a couple different numbers thrown out around there but that's the big one it was is four thousand japanese in the ballpark I can't remember the exact number. I don't think there is, right? I think there's a bunch of different estimates. That... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's it's kind of all over the place. It's in the thousands, at least. Oh, though. oh, yeah. It's yeah. it's certainly it's certainly in the thousands. Um, but but yeah, just uh, and again, something that would be completely horrifying, and something that you don't that you don't see in the European theater. Um, just these these fanatical charges. Um, where the I think I think the 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 kind of rallying cry was was 10, 10 lives for one or seven lives for one. We're like, okay, we're gonna die, but we're gonna take seven Americans before we go. Or we're gonna take 10 Americans before we go. That's that's the plan. Um, and this was the type of bonsai charge, if I remember correctly, that is was closer i mean you could call it a suicide charge there were wounded japanese soldiers on crutches guys with 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 sticks even this wasn't like a fully equipped infantry brigade coming down the hill 
Yeah. I don't know if I would say civilians necessarily. Were there civilians in there? You know? No, this, this would have been uh, just the Japanese uh, primarily. Um, I, I guess it's possible that there were some civilians that were, were pressed into it, but sure. I think it's largely uh, a, a, Japanese, a Japanese charge. But a banged up force, underarmed at that point, probably. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's one thing that I, I think people don't really take into consideration is that, yeah, the, the Americans are, are fighting under these horrible circumstances. Uh, for the Japanese, it, it was worse, honestly. Um, you know, they, they are, as, you know, you take a, a young Marine who is just got a canteen full of water that tastes like diesel fuel because it's been dipped out of a, a 55-gallon drum that somebody just scrubbed out. Uh, the, the Japanese were, were in a much worse shape uh, because they, they couldn't get resupplied because our American submarines were just wreaking havoc on, on Japanese shipping. Um, so, so, so by the time the battle was over, uh, the, the ones that did live were, were in a pretty sorry condition. Mm. But You don't hear much about that, right? No, no. And, that, and that's something else that I, I kind of glazed over. I talk about how awful the, the conditions were. So, you know, here I am, just some regular dude and trekking around the jungle and everything like that. Uh, I could not get enough to drink uh, while I was there. I, I was putting down probably uh, five or six 32-ounce Gatorades a day, plus whatever water uh, I could get, and, and still was not getting enough. Um, and there, there was one day that Fred and I went back in the jungle, and we were looking for the, the cave where... Uh, the lieutenant general who was in command of all the forces there in Saipan, his name was uh, Saito, looking for the cave where he committed suicide. And uh, it, it was supposed to be kind of an in and out trek, like a mile in and then a mile out. Over very, again, rough country. Well, there had been a monsoon that had blown over a bunch of trees. And uh, there's a, a poisonous plant there called velvet bean that like, Fred was fearless about everything except for the velvet bean like he he almost called off the entire thing saying he said if if this if there's too much of this stuff we're not going in because we don't want this touching you mm. so anyway we, we were dealing with all of this stuff um you know trying to to get in uh, actually we found a grenade while i was out there um but american or short, japanese though i gotta know it was american yeah american oh, big boom okay yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I left it. Um, I, I would like to have taken it home, but PSA um, these days, yeah. Well, yes, yeah, they, they might have had something to say about that. Um, but anyway, it, what was supposed to be kind of a, a shorter trip in and out, we just took a bottle of water each, uh, ended up being like over half a day. And by the time we got back, we were both spent and we're about dehydrated. And it made me think, okay, these guys are going in and they've got a canteen full of nasty water. Um, I'm just going in and I'm just carrying a camera, uh, pointing it at myself like a goofball. I don't have anybody shooting at me. I'm not carrying a heavy load. Um, it, it, yeah, it gave me just a, a small glimpse as to what it would have been like fighting on Saipan. I mean, I'm sure at some point, I'm, I'm sure there's some level of acclimation Right, like these guys didn't go from New York in the winter to Saipan in, in the middle of the summer. So there was some acclimation, but, but like that doesn't, 
not, it doesn't do away with that issue. I mean, no. maybe it makes it a little bit better, but oh, geez. No. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not anything that I would have wanted to, to have any part of. <laughs> God. Um, Tinian. Mm-hmm. Tinian, I feel like when you step back and look at World War II, there's one thing that comes to mind for me, how Tinian was used towards yep. the end of the war. Um, was that your primary goal in going there? Were there other parts of the island you wanted to see? Uh, so whenever you're talking about Tinian, here, here's one thing that really surprised me is how close it is to Saipan. Um, it's like you can stand on the southern end of Saipan and, and look over and see Tinian. It's just two or three miles away. Uh, so, so while this battle is raging on Saipan, there are Japanese over on Tinian just kind of waiting uh, to basically waiting for their turn. Um, I got a map up here. So yeah, for comparison, like Guam is grouped in this category of the same operation. It's the Marianas. It's 115 miles away. Yeah. It's all part of Operation Forager. But that's very close. Like there's some other ones where you're talking hundreds of miles. So two to three miles is like on top of each other. It's nothing. Yeah. Once, once the uh, the 27th Infantry and, and the 4th Marine Division secured the southern part of the island. They set up artillery and were, were firing over on Tinian, uh, you know, kind of softening it up. But um, so whenever you think of Tinian, the, the thing that people commonly think of is the, uh, the air base that, that was set up there. This is where uh, the, the U.S. was running bombing operations uh, into Japan uh, which is the, the whole purpose of taking the Northern Marianas uh, was to, to get an air base that was within striking distance of the Japanese home islands. Uh, this is also where um, the B-29s that dropped the atomic bombs took off from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Enola Gay and, and Boxcar mm-hmm. dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What, what people don't think about is the fact that that was a Japanese occupied island and somebody had to, had to take that island and clear it before the CBs could come in and start setting up operations. We kind of skip and, forward to the- And, yeah. and nobody, nobody ever talks about it. Nobody ever you know, addresses it. So, so that's one that I wanted to tackle. Be like, okay, yeah, I want to show the air base. Um, but I also want to talk about the guys who, who cleared this out. So in, in order of operations, you had Saipan first and it, it was getting it was getting bogged down. Uh, they, they were expecting 15,000 defenders. There ended up being 30,000. Uh, so it was, it was more of a slog getting through Saipan. The action in Guam was delayed because of that. So then they go and they attack Guam. Well, after Saipan was secured, those same guys who fought in Saipan had to basically they get a few days rest and then Another Look, it makes sense. Invasion. They're right there. Yeah, they're, they're right that. there. Yeah. So then another amphibious invasion uh, in, into Tinian. Uh, Tinian doesn't have the the steep terrain features like what Saipan does. It's it's more flat, uh, and during the time of the battle would have been like a giant sugarcane plantation. Um, but it, yeah, it's definitely interesting to to go there. And one of the things that I, I show in the video is um, there were like three main spots uh, around the island where they possibly could have landed. Um, one is, is in the southern part of the island uh, next to the, uh, the largest city there, which I say largest city, it's a large town. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's another spot on the northeast part of the island. The least likely spot 
was the the northwest part of the island. Uh, there were only a few like narrow spots where you could possibly have an invasion force. Uh, and, and that's the one that the Marines chose because it was the least likely and, and they figured it was going to be the least defended. And whenever I show these landing beaches, it's it's pretty impressive what they did. One of the landing beaches is literally about 60 yards wide. Yeah, it's not Normandy. It's not what you think of no. in Normandy. Yeah, big no. open sand beach. No, not at all. Yeah, and the beaches aren't, aren't deep like Normandy either. Uh, you know, at low tide at Normandy, you're looking at, oh my gosh, um, four or 500 yards. Mm. Uh, the landing beaches at Saipan, Tinian, uh, well, and, and Guam as well. Uh, very, very narrow landing beach that, that they had to, to get on. And then straight jungle, wood line? Uh, yes, at that time. Yeah, at that time they would have been right. Well, I say that on, on Tinian, it's you're you're right into sugarcane fields. Um, now Tinian today, um, there well and, and Saipan both there are no sugarcane fields there anymore. It's all been reclaimed by the jungle. Uh, Tinian, here you're looking at a place on the northern part of the island that during World War II was like the busiest airport on planet Earth, and. Uh, Today it's completely abandoned. It, uh, I, I felt like I was on the set of The Walking Dead, whenever mm. I was there. Uh, it, it felt like I was the last man on Earth. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and I you just <laughs> see nature take back over, right? Yeah, and, and it there, will. Yeah, and I was the only one there. Like the whole part, that whole part of the island was basically just mine to explore. I actually got my rental car out on the runway where uh, the B-29s took off and just like floored it and sped down as fast as I could. I mean, you, you could do anything there. It was, it was wild. That's interesting. I, I'm always kind of torn with that. Like we used to go to Mexico a lot when I was younger mm -hmm. and we go to the ruin in Tulum. And you can just walk okay. up. You just, like, you want to go to the top, walk to the top. There are no ropes, nothing. And yeah. like, I don't know, people probably died trying to do that because there's big falls and the rock. <laughs> But we went back a few years ago. There's ropes everywhere. Like you got to stay on this narrow path. You can't touch it. I'm kind of torn because I, I do like what you just described. Like you want to go on the runway, head out on the runway. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, is it? Yeah. I like both sides. Yeah, I, I can. I can see there, there's a, a balance. Um, personally, I, I like things to be as close to what they were you know, in 1944, 1945 as, as possible. Uh, if I were to go to Tinian and, you know, there would have been like a big visitor center and everything like that, you know, it, there's, there's value in that. Um, but, but I also like the idea of, of things just kind of being preserved, you know, the, the way that it was. I'm looking at these bomb loading pits. Mm -hmm. Those are preserved. I'm using that term loosely, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, they have a covering over them. Okay. Um, yeah, with, with some pictures of, of what it would have looked like. Um, but, but that it, it does. It, everything around it looks completely abandoned. Oh, I mean, man. It, it looks like you could stumble into that. And be like, what is happening here? I, I'm telling you, whenever I say it's the set of The Walking Dead, like they could have filmed it there and it it would have fit in with everything on the, on the TV show. Uh, it, it was, yeah, yeah, pretty crazy. Well, I mean, the islands are pretty um, arbitrary from a land perspective right i mean they had a very specific purpose but from a yeah. use and even the locals there i don't think it was just it wasn't very necessary for all the other countries running their 
normal day-to-day operations. You know what I mean? Besides, you know, if you, if you throw the war part out of it. Yeah. And, you know, I have to think, you know, at the time, you know, the war ends and they're just like, "Eh, okay, war's over. We don't need this anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if there was a whole lot of uh, consideration for like, you know, the, the historic perspective, uh, you know, and things like that. Um, I've, I've often wondered that about, you know, some of the more recent conflicts, you know, 75, 80 years from now, uh, is, is there going to be somebody looking at a common piece of gear that you guys may have had in Afghanistan and be completely geeking out over it, you know, that, oh man, this is the stuff that they wore, uh, you know, when they were in Afghanistan or, you know, this is, uh, you know, stuff that, that we don't really give any thought to. Um, I think Vietnam's an interesting look at that because my understanding in talking to the, I've not been, but talking mm-hmm. with a couple of buddies who have been is that places like Hamburger Hill, which is this, you know, not glorified, but but revered piece of American military history. Mm-hmm. When you go there, it's just like a random hill. And there's like a little tiny plaque on the side that you would walk past and not even know that it was there. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, we were talking about some of the, the other islands earlier. Um, Okinawa. I, I've not been to Okinawa, but I you know, know people who've been there. Here we have one of the, the largest battles of the Pacific theater. Most of that battlefield has been lost to urbanization and an urban sprawl. Um, you know, there, there are a few places that, you know, where you can go and, and kind of get an idea, but, you know, a, a lot of that, yeah, the war was over and they were like, okay, well, time to, time to move on. Uh, of course, now in retrospect, we look at it and we're like, oh man, uh, it would be nice to kind of see that, how, how it was. Yeah. I want both sides all the time. Um, yeah. Was that more the case at Guam? Because Guam is much more built up, much more populated than either of the other two islands. Was there more urban sprawl you were competing with? Yeah, Guam, Guam was a, a different experience. Uh, for one, it, it was more difficult to prepare for. Um, go to Amazon and try and find a book on the Battle of Guam. There, there's very little out there. Or go, go try and find a, a documentary about the Battle of Guam. There's, there's just not a whole lot to, to draw from. Uh, so, so preparation for, for that part was a little bit more difficult for me. And then whenever I got there, of course, there's a, a big, you know, U.S. military base that, that's there. It's, it's a lot more built up. Um, Guam ha- just has a little bit different vibe than Saipan does. Saipan, Saipan I really aside from the suffocating heat, I, I felt at home there because it felt like a, a small town to me. And, and Guam, uh, I, I didn't get that, that same vibe. Um, there's, there's still a lot of parts of Guam, like in the southern part especially, that's pretty wild and, and mountainous. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot more built up than, is, than Saipan. Is the connection between those three islands arbitrary like from our viewpoint of history or pre-world war ii would the people on guam have you know is the, is the history interconnected there between those three islands so so prior to world war ii um guam was a territory of the u.s 
and Saipan was a territory of the Japanese. Uh, so, so they weren't really connected in the same way that, that they are now. Um, as far as the people, there's a connection there, you know, the, the Chamorro people. Okay. Uh, but the U.S. had acquired Guam after the, the Spanish-American War and had a, had a presence there. You know, a lot of people, you know, focus on, on Pearl Harbor, you know, on December 7th, 1941, and don't realize that within an hour or two, uh, the Japanese had launched an attack on uh, Guam and on the Philippines and, uh, you know, these, these U.S. territories in the Pacific. So this was a, you know, a huge deal. Um, so as a matter of fact, the, the attack on Guam uh, the air raids from the Japanese were from Saipan. Um, so, so anyway, so, so yeah, there's, there's a, a connection there and I've kind of gotten, I went off on a rabbit trail and I forgot your original question now. <laughs> oh, I don't know. As we're starting to talk about Guam being built up more urbanized, um, yeah. just a lot different than the other two. Yeah. And, and Guam's also uh, a much larger Island um, than, than Saipan and Tinian. So, so the U S had already had a, a presence there, pre-war, uh, which is why it's kind of weird to me that there's so little focus on it in the grand scheme of things in World War II, because this is, this is an American territory that was reclaimed. Um, I, I think that maybe the reason we don't focus on Guam as much is that, um, this, this is going to sound morbid, it, it doesn't have the body count that, I was gonna say, okay. that yeah. Saipan does. On either side, when the U.S. lost it or retook it, neither one of those Correct. were, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because e even um, before Pearl Harbor, uh, the U.S. had withdrawn a lot of their, they, like all of the families of the servicemen there were evacuated because they you know, were afraid of Japanese aggression. And we only had like a small skeleton force that, that was there. Um, so, it, yeah, like I said, it's, it's a morbid way to think about it, but there's there's not there's not the body count that there was like on Saipan. And the reason for that is in large part, uh, the Japanese force that's defending Guam is half the size of what was defending Saipan. And they're, they're also having to cover a larger area. Uh, and the U S had learned quite a bit, you know, on the ground in Saipan and uh, it just bombed the heck out of Guam uh, prior to oh, sure. prior to the landings. Um, so there, there was a lot more to, to kind of soften them up uh, before before that happened. Well, the whole body count, I mean, that's the reality of things. The reason we just talked about Hamburger Hill is because of body count. Yeah. Mostly U.S., right? It's an insignificant hill. There's no value to the territory. Yeah. It was just a bad loss. And it's just right. like, that's what attracts people. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, yeah, there's there's the, the shock value of it. Um, but, and, and, and I kind of struggle with that too. Um, you know, cause I find myself more attracted to the stories of like Saipan where there are these crazy things that happened or Normandy or, or whatever. Uh, but for a family who had a, a son or a brother that was killed on Guam, that's a, Hey, that, that battle was a, a big deal. Um, also, um, so, so on Guam, I should have maybe prefaced this when I was talking about Saipan. Saipan, you have the, the second and fourth Marine Division landing there, followed by the, the 27th Infantry Division. Um, on, on Guam, it's the, the third Marine Division. Um, 
and the 77th Infantry Division. And, you know, the 77th Infantry Division, that's the Statue of Liberty Division. And uh, people may not be familiar with that division, but you're probably familiar with somebody who served with the 77th, uh, Desmond Doss, who was uh, depicted in the movie Hacksaw Ridge, mm. Medal of Honor recipient at the Battle of Okinawa. Uh, the, the movie Hacksaw Ridge, they, they kind of depict Desmond Doss as being this, you know, young, fresh-faced guy, and he's, he's having to, you know, prove himself, you know, in combat, you know, at the Battle of Okinawa. Um, in, in reality, uh, I, I say this in the video, by, by the time Okinawa rolls around, Desmond Doss was already Desmond Doss. And uh, in, in the videos, I go to the beach where, where he would have come ashore for the very first time. Uh, he ended up being awarded a Bronze Star uh, for, um, for his actions there um, on Guam. They went to the Philippines. He was awarded another bronze star there. And then he goes to Okinawa where he uh, performs his actions on Hexall Ridge. That it, yeah, even uh, before Okinawa, that's an incredible career. Oh, oh he, yeah. They, they were, they were battle hardened by the time they got to Okinawa. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, the, the movie, they, they make it look like, you know, they're entering combat for the first time and they're all nervous and scared, but they, they, they already had a, a few brutal battles under their belt by that time. Sayer, have you heard of Ben Solomon? No. Have you heard that name? Okay. I don't think so. JD, help me out with this one. So, um, so Ben? Yeah, Saipan. No, no, no. Uh, Saipan dentist. Yes. Uh, Medal of Honor recipient. It's pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I mentioned being on the Tanapag plane on Saipan earlier. Um, so at this site where, where the largest bonsai charge of, of World War II took place, uh, there's a, a young Jewish dentist by the name of, of Ben Solomon. And um, like I said, he, he was the, the dentist for the regiment. Well, on, on Saipan, uh, in the middle of a battle, you know, there's not a whole lot of need for somebody to get a root canal, uh, you know, right in, in the middle of this. So uh, Solomon volunteered to serve as, as a medic uh, in, or as a, was it a medic or battalion surgeon? Anyway, it, somewhere in medical to, to help world, out with yeah. in, in medical. Um, so he was right in the, the thick of this bonsai charge that's taking place. Uh, Japanese start overrunning the aid station. He's trying to help people get out and ends up picking up a weapon and, um, you know, defending these guys, uh, defending the wounded uh, against this, this Japanese onslaught. Uh, he ends up manning a uh, machine gun, and I can't remember the, the exact numbers, um, but they found him the next morning. He had uh, multiple uh, gunshot and bayonet wounds, was, ha had been killed in, in the attack. And uh, in front of him are just piles of, of Japanese soldiers uh, that, that he had killed. He was, oh. go ahead. I'll read it right here because when you said sure. Ben Solomon, I'm looking it up. Sure. Um, he's found slumped, this is Wikipedia, slumped over the machine gun with the bodies of 98 enemy troops piled up in front of his position. His body had 76 bullet wounds and many bayonet wounds, up to 28, which was received while he was alive. Yeah. Dentist. Yeah, uh, a dentist. Now here's, and I don't think I talked about this in, in the video, uh, the, the process of him being awarded the Medal of Honor wouldn't come until many years later. 
Um, one, uh, the, one of the main reasons was because, uh, you know, being in the, the medical department, um, he wasn't supposed to be, you know, picking up a weapon. Sure. Um, so, so there were some complications there. Um, and then, and then there, there was something else with the, like the machine gun being a, a crew service weapon. So anyway, it was, it was quite a process, uh, for him to, to get the medal of honor, but yeah. Um, Eagle scout, one of eight Eagle scouts. One of I think nine. He's the, I think he's the only. The Medal of Honor. I think he's the only dentist to receive the Medal of Honor, which wouldn't, which would make sense, right? There yeah. Probably aren't going to be a lot of those, but. Nope. Yeah. Alexander Gordon Lyle and Weedon Osborne. Yeah. Where where were they at? Uh, let's see. I'm putting World my money on Alexander Gordon Lyle, World War One. Okay. Uh, Weedon Osborne, World War One. Okay. See, that's, that's what I like about doing these videos and going to these places is because I, I end up going down these rabbit holes and people, people ask questions and, and it's an opportunity for me to learn. Uh, well, your listeners, your viewers, um, fans, subscribers, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, you're in the weeds on this, right? And so yeah. they're going to have a, a, also a depth of knowledge yep. um, as much as yours, maybe even more than yours, right? You're the one who happens to be sharing it out loud, essentially, but plenty of smart people and readers and, and uh, history buffs that want to get context about all this. And then, yeah. hey, go back to the internet. Like, this could be false. I'm reading on Wikipedia, right? It's the internet. It's an open source document, but yeah. it's pretty damn good because the people that are in the weeds are the ones sort of writing these things too. And it's yeah. it's sort of self-correcting in a, in a in just a real different way where we say history is written by the victors. That's true. Mm-hmm. But more and more it's written by the questioners and the curious. And to me, I'm more optimistic about that sort of thing that we're living now versus when you're getting brainwashed 80 years ago. Yeah. Well, that's, that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions of that people have of me on the channel is that, is that I know everything. Right. And I, and I don't. Uh, So there, there might be something that, you know, I don't know, on Saipan or Tinian or whatever, you know, some story that I overlook or, or maybe there's something that I show and something else that I didn't show. And, and uh, I, you guys will be surprised to learn this, but there's, uh, you know, some people who have, uh, you know, certain levels of outrage that they like to vent and spew out on the internet. What? Um, what? We have the same thing. <laughs> and people will just be shocked. You know, they're like, how, how could you not know this? I'm like, I am learning things just like everybody else. Um, yeah. Like I said, it's the, the whole, uh, thing with the YouTube channel. It's, I, I like the interactive nature of it where I put stuff out and then, and then people comment on it and then, and then I learn more. Yeah. Yes. That's awesome. It's like, you're starting a conversation yeah. is all it is just a conversation exactly. primer. Um, you're good at it, which is what prompts conversation. But I think that's the coolest part out there. Hands down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, and, and I, I like to look at it as, um, you know, all of us kind of learning together. Because uh, in, in a lot of these cases, you know, it's, it's my first time being there. It's, it's not like I'm some lifelong expert on the Battle of Saipan and I've taken, you know, 15 trips and, you know, know it like the back of my hand. Uh, it's, it's kind of an opportunity to uh, kind of like an interactive learning uh, experience where we're, we're get, all getting something, you know, together. But, and then over time though, because you're getting the reps in and I, I like, I, th- I think life is basically like practice. It's batting cages. Mm-hmm. 
And you just, it just, you try to hit them, but if you miss them, you miss them. And if you duff them, you duff them, but you're getting reps in like the whole time and you're still young and you just keep doing these things and taking that. um, It's like forward steps. It's a part of it. Right. Right. And you just keep taking them and then you look behind you and like the line is way back there now. Yeah. You never would have thought you'd get so far, but it's just by taking a little bit of effort, you know, just sort of just keep plugging, keep plugging. And it's practice, you know, you don't, it's not a test. You don't have to know it all. I mean, that's just my opinion on it. it just anything. Yeah. Well, and something that, that, I don't know, makes me feel a little bit better and gives me a little bit of encouragement. Uh, so I, I talked about Fred, the, the local Chamorro man that, that I linked up yeah. with. This dude has, has lived there uh, on Saipan, you know, grew up there, you know, knows the island like the back of his hand. Here, here's actually something pretty funny before I tell this other part. Tinian is is three miles away. You can jump on this little toy plane and they fly you over there and dump you off. And then the toy plane brings you back later. He's lived there his entire life. And uh, I said something about going to Tinian. And he's like, oh, I need to go there one of these days. And I'm like, what? You, what? You've never been? Like you could almost swim there. Yeah. Uh, you could canoe <laughs> you there could for ac- sure. accidentally end up there one day. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. But he's, he's never been to Tinian. And I think it cracks me up. And I said, well, I can't wait for the videos to come out so you can see what's over there. Um, but he, he and I were texting each other last night. And um, I said something um, about a video that's coming up in the series um, on a, a, a massacre that took place called the, the Faha Massacre. And uh, it's where 30 big, strong local Chamorro men were, were rounded up and, and killed by the, the Japanese uh, as the Americans were coming in because they were basically eliminating a threat. They didn't want an insurgency uh, with the local sure. population. So they round these guys up and kill them. And I, I go to the site where, where these, where these uh, innocent civilians were, were murdered. And, um, and he said... He said, you might want to fact check that. And so I'm getting all worried because he's like, are you sure it's not this place, you know, the Finna Cave? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure. So I did some looking up and uh, long story short, he was like, oh, he said, this is a new one for me. And he's uh, probably in his mid fifties, I would guess. He said, eh, I'm, he said, there, he said, that just goes to show you're, you're always learning. You're never too old to learn. And, and he's grew up there in the Northern Marianas. Talk about a good dude um, oh, who is awesome. essentially an expert on the thing. He just took a, not a correction, but was open enough to hear. Maybe I'm not right on that. Let me double check it. Yeah. Love that. Super, super humble guy. And even while we were there, um, you know, I was getting into the weeds about, you know, uh, what regiment was here, what regiment was there and, you know, stuff like that. And he said, uh, he said, it sounds like you probably know more than me about, you know, like the, the regiments involved and, and who was where. He said, I can take you to the places. And I can tell you the stories, he said, but on an operational level, he said, it sounds like you probably know a little bit more than I do. It's super humble guy. He, he was great. Sounds like a good team. Yeah. We're, so, uh, I, I'm hoping to go back. Um, he, he told me, he said, I have a lot more places that I could take you. He said, we can go deeper in the jungle. He said, and in the text, he said, lots more caves, <laughs> lots of bones. Um, I was like, oh, I don't know if that's a selling point or not. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I'm real surprised if the bones are like just open and obvious. They're just everywhere strewn about. And you're saying the Japanese government is they've repatriated. I'm really surprised they haven't really. If it's that easy to walk across, anybody can just take a plane ticket and look at the Mm -hmm. their own KIAs or MIA, whatever you want to call them, casualties of war. 
Yeah. So I'm real the, surprised by that, to be honest. The bones that I showed in the episode where we go into the cave and there's like a, a femur and a clavicle, and you know, there's just like this pile of Japanese bones are not there anymore. Um, the, the Japanese came in at the time that we're recording this. It's been about two weeks ago. Okay. Uh, they came in and got them. So in a way, I was glad that we got in there when we did to like document them and, and be able to, to show people where they were, um, you know, b- I, beforehand. I think that Japanese repatriate repatriation effort, I feel like I didn't say that right. Um, I think that's relatively recent. Like in the last five or 10 years, they've really stepped up those efforts, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, and that, that was something else that I probably should have focused on a little bit more uh, in the videos that is really interesting to me. Um, whenever you go to Saipan, there are a few American memorials, lots of Japanese. Uh, there are, like the, the Japanese tourism uh, for a long time ha- has been their like primary source of tourism on Saipan. Hmm. And there were, there were tons of Japanese memorials there uh, to the dead, uh, people coming and, and seeing where, you know, their grandfather, great-grandfather uh, was fought and, and was killed. Um, yeah, it was, it was something a, a little bit different because even, you know, we were talking about Normandy earlier. You go to Normandy, you don't see German monuments. Are there any? There's got to be a couple, right? Like a graveyard or something? I think oh, yeah. Yeah, they have... They, they have the cemeteries, okay. um, but as far as like a memorial on the beach saying, hey, here's where the, here's where the 12th SS fought, you know, or yeah, it's something like that. Sure. That's, yeah, they don't have that mm-hmm. uh, all yeah, over the place. Treated differently, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, as we're wrapping up here, you started to get into this a second ago, but I'll ask it officially. If you sure. could go back on that trip you just did, mm-hmm. or the next trip would be someplace you hadn't been, what would it be? Uh, if, if I could go back, I would spend more time on Saipan. Uh, so well, you, would go, and, you would go back, do those three, rather than somewhere new next? Oh, no. That was, um, sorry, yeah, phrase okay. weird. So I, I do want to go back to the Marianas at some point and, and pick up some of the stuff that I missed. Man, I, I mentioned earlier Peleliu, gosh, is <laughs> <laughs> I really, really want to go to Peleliu. That wasn't uh, a fair but, question because you already said you wanted to go back. It would be a lot of fun to go back. I guess more is like, there's still things there you want to uncover. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. But my question though, if you've been to Normandy, even the Pacific, what about Italy, North Africa? Yeah. So that, that's a, another one. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because just the past few evenings I've been researching uh, both of, both of those places, especially North Africa, because uh, again, it's kind of like Guam, you know, go, go find some videos about, north africa of people who are who are going there today and and showing it's there's there's some but but not a lot um the 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 thing with north africa is if if i go there i definitely want to go with somebody who knows their stuff and knows their way around um because i mean that's like morocco libya tunisia um I don't know if I want to trek out by myself on, on that one. Uh, yeah, I, that's fair. I, I don't yeah. know like security issues. I'm, I'm not sure, sure on, on that one. Um, but yeah, I've, I've also looked at, at Sicily and, and, and Italy um, for sure. 
That sounds, like a, um, that sounds like a family trip is what that would be right there. <laughs> the book, I will say, I don't know if you've read this one, but I read this book, An Army at Dawn, Rick Atkinson. Yes, yes. I That's was- a great one for North Africa because we yeah. are, like you're saying, we're pretty ignorant about it. And that was really our first army sort of engagements and we weren't great either no um and you know maybe that's why we don't know about it as much it's easier to sort of let's say uh glorify the other ones yeah um, yeah there's but a that's of- a part of it right and rommel and there's a lot there there's a lot to there's a lot there yeah uh yeah a lot of on the job training um on on that north africa operation uh yeah and, and the fact that it it's like in this desert area it, it would be something so wild and different mm-hmm. um, you know, for me that I, I think that would be cool to to dive into for sure yeah totally well we can let you get back to your busy schedule jd thank you very <laughs> much for taking the time man uh history you. underground on youtube we'll link it go check them out Thanks. thank you again i hope you enjoyed today's show if you like what we're doing we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on it helps us get in front of new listeners and provides feedback on how we're doing we'll see you next time